I'm really delighted to be joined by some amazing speakers who will be talking about aspects of a changing world that you and I will all be facing. And I wanted to set the scene today for what you're about to hear. We are all living through uh, a pandemic and learning to live with that and an illness that at the moment has no cure. But parking to one side the health ramifications of that it's probably been the single largest catalyst in social and business change that we have seen in a lifetime. And we're all going to be impacted by it in terms of how we live, how we socialize and how we work. Yet it's also a unique opportunity to shape our futures and understand and prepare for the inevitable changes to aspects of our lives that we have taken for granted for a very long time. That's why we wanted to host today to have a look at that bigger picture, the bigger digital agenda, and also projects that are happening in our region that will impact on all of us. For those of you who don't know, smart cities are put very simply, it's where you use technology and data to create and shape a very different world that is more productive and conducive to our lifestyles. So things like IoT, 5G, drones, automation, robotics, massive machine learning, they're all out there and they're all happening, but now it seems that their relevance and their use has accelerated greatly. Um, and we also will be examining some of our local factors that I talked about a moment ago. The mayor and other key stakeholders across the region have prepared the Recharge the West Midlands plan, which is a three billion plus case to government to kickstart our economy, focusing in on a whole host of our key strengths, but digital is a big part of that. So if we're in agreement that our world is changing, uh, I think it's now time to hand over to our speakers to explain exactly how that may happen. So without further ado, I'd like to invite our first speaker, Carl Beat, who is the Head of Transport Strategy and Intelligence at the West Midlands Combined Authority. A quick intro from Carl and some further questions. Um, over to you, Carl. Thank you. Thank you. Um, great to be here. Great to do something again back in the business community, even in a digital way, which feels like it's been uh, long overdue and um, miss the, uh, like many of you, probably the hustle and bustle of being in the city centre and being involved in events like this. So great, great to be able to connect to people, even if it's in a new way and the sort of thing we'll talk about now. So as, uh, as, as we mentioned, Transport for West Midlands, we're the transport arm of the Combined Authority. Combined Authority led by the Mayor um, Andy Street. Um, mainly the seven local authorities in the West Midlands Met area, so Birmingham, Foley Hill, Coventry, and the four Black Country authorities, as well as a range of partners um, covering LEPs, uh, Chambers of Commerce, and so on. Uh, and in some ways, in terms of transport for West Midlands, sometimes it's easier for clarity to talk about the things we don't do rather than the things we do do. So we don't run the buses, National Express do that. Um, we do run the tram in Birmingham. Many of you will have seen um, significant expansion of the tram in the city centre recently and currently down um, Broad Street. We play a significant role in developing new rail infrastructure, although we don't run the trains. Um, we also play an important role in information, ticketing, marketing, and promoting um, transport in, in all of its forms across the Midlands. And really everything we do is about working in collaboration, collaboration with operators and collaboration with, um, with local authorities. Um, and our industry, like many, has seen a significant um, impact over the last few months 
um, someone who's been working for 17, 18 years now has been promoting people to change their habits, get out of the car, maybe get onto public transport. For the first time in my professional life, we've been working on campaigns that say, don't get on the train, don't get on the bus, please stay as safe as possible. So this period has been a significant challenge as people, um, people will probably appreciate. And at the moment, um, we are doing our best to keep running what we would say is a, a safe and clean network as we can. But in particular, um, is there for our key workers who are so important to keeping the economy going and making sure that those, that those functions um, can happen. Uh, and like any business, as we think about what scenarios are going to be going forward, um, in all of our scenarios that we've looked at, um, public transport in particular is probably going to be at lower levels than it was pre the pandemic. Um, and as has been mentioned in, in the intro, the way that we are working, living, um, everything uh, that's happened recently, how much will that influence people going forward? Um, Although the situation has obviously been a very challenging one, we recently did a survey with, um, with our customers, with our residents, and we had 6,200 responses to that. And one of the things that we asked is what people, what if anything would you like to keep um, from this current situation? And from a transport perspective, the things that people mentioned were um, the cleaner air, the quieter roads, being able to go out walking, cycling, and so on. So there is an appetite for people to, to do that more. Um, and we know that's not easy. It's related to what the weather's like, related to what people are doing that day. But we think there's a real opportunity there. Um, and also, like many of us are doing now, um, a lot of people that have said that they have enjoyed the home working and would prefer to work in that way going forward. So from a transport point of view, is an interesting um, challenge there around we want the vibrancy of some of our um, city centres, town centres, employment locations to come back. It's important for the economy that those things happen, but also to benefit from some of the reduced impacts that um, the transport network has on our wider society. Traffic accidents, air quality, carbon emissions and so on. So all of these things have led us to start thinking about what a, what a revised transport strategy might look like for our area. So we have a statutory local transport plan. It's one of the important roles that Transport for West Midlands has to set out the plan of what we think transport will look like. And um, we've really started to look at, in many ways, it feels quite anachronistic now, that plan. So we're looking forward at what, what a new plan uh, for transport could look like and, it, and in that plan in particular digital and technology probably plays a much greater role than it than it ever has done before um, and without getting kind of too quasi-academic we see it as a kind of triple access system so accessibility in the traditional sense that we often talk about about improving transport connectivity so whether that's through road or rail walking and cycling uh, bus and so on but also thinking about how um, accessibility can be digital. So we're all doing exactly what we're all doing now. Can we reduce the need for some people to travel potentially by having these digital means of communicating with each other? And then the third, the third aspect is making sure that we have access to facilities um, that are local to us where that's possible. So enabling people to make shorter journeys by being close to the facilities um, that they need, whether that's um, shopping or healthcare or so on. So our planning and our thinking about what the future of transport might look like has um, has evolved significantly over the past few weeks as, as the markets and the behaviours that were in change. 
Um, and whilst there were the positive aspects that people have referenced about enjoying some of those quieter streets and the better air quality and being able to be more active, which is which is an issue we have in the West Midlands, the lack of activity, uh, particularly amongst some of our some of our young people. There's also been some some negatives about the fear of sharing again, the fear of sharing space and sharing transport, and that again gives us some important areas and topics to think about and. Um, and choose to try choose to, to tackle um, from our perspective one of the positives of where we are as a region is that we we believe that we are leading the way in terms of um, innovation in the transport sector um, this is a place where the automotive sector is particularly strong and building on some of those strengths uh, we are one of the first places that's significantly trialing and testing connected autonomous vehicles as uh, a test bed across coventry Solihull. Um, Birmingham and bits of Warwickshire where those vehicles are starting to be or at least in, in progress of will, will be tested on that network to see what benefits they could offer. We were announced as the UK's first future transport zone which came with a little bit of cash from government not as much as we'd like but a little bit and some additional powers that's enabling us to do some of those things around really understanding our customers better the data being able to um, offer hopefully better services it's also led to um, a quick discussion we're having before the meeting started. We're going to be an area, one of the first areas in the country, to trial e-scooters. So a different form of technology, a way of moving people around, um, maybe um, more efficiently than previously, or a technology or a mode of transport doesn't require sharing, which in the short term could be particularly important. Um, we're a 5G area, which many people on this call probably know more about than me, but it's particularly important, particularly important for transport, you know, that the backbone of being able to transport this data quickly and efficiently so, so that we can have these new modes or new services work properly. Um, we're also trialling other fairly, um, fairly innovative approaches, in particular around behaviour change, to try and get people to, to maybe leave their cars behind. Um, projects that we're doing with Coventry City Council around mobility credits. So if you trade in an old car, a potentially old polluting vehicle, you would be given an app with a, um, a bank account essentially on it that lets you spend money on um, either maybe a train ticket, bus ticket, hiring a taxi, maybe hiring one of the e-scooters in the future or hiring some of the, um, the, the cycles we're about to, to start to roll out in, um, in the next year or so. So we're taking the, the approach of thinking about how digital can help the transport network, help our communities and help our citizens very, very seriously in our thinking going forward. We think it's a major strength that we have compared to other areas. Um, and some of the big challenges that we've got around carbon, air quality, we think it can play a role in that. Um, but we're, we're, we're very clear, I think, that the, the world uh, uh, that we're in now is definitely not the world it was before. Um, some of the traditional ways of running some of our transport services will, will need to be looked at. Um, we don't have a commercial bus network anymore. The bus network, which was wholly... Um, was a very there was some subsidy we subsidized some socially necessary routes to the tune of about nine million pounds a year but overall it was you know a largely commercial network there are there are no commercial bus networks anymore there simply isn't the patronage we're going to have to really think about the services that we provide in, in in the future and innovation digital and new ways of doing it will probably be a firm a firm part of that
Um, I don't want to go over my time, so I may well leave it there. But I'm happy for any any questions, any comments, or any any wider thoughts that people have got. There very much, Carl. And do use that chat functions to, to get your questions through. I'm getting some directly, and I will be coming on to those in a moment. Um, but before I do, I'd now like to uh, invite our second speaker, Yanis, to, to take the stage. Yanis is the founder of Birmingham Tech Week, amongst many other things. Over to you, Yanis. Thank you, Amadeep. Um, yeah, as Amadeep said, I am the founder of Birmingham Tech and um, Birmingham Tech Week, which took place last year. And as an organisation, it's great to be on this call as we believe that kind of smart cities play such an important role in the digital transformation of the West Midlands and Birmingham. And a lot of our members are looking to kind of take advantage of that digitalisation and also opportunities that surrounds that as, as well. Um, it's great to kind of hear what Carl and his team are doing at Transport for West Midlands. Um, you know, that digital transformation around the transport network is going to kind of really enable people to move freely within the city and feel safer as well at the same time. Um, so I just wanted to kind of build on, on what Carl was saying, really. And, and I think kind of, you know, right at the heart of, of all of this is um, really first of all, the, the kind of hardware that sits around a smart city. So the electrification of roads, smart lighting, um, and also the sensors that enable this data to move freely and be shared across different networks as well. So it's really important that when we're kind of building new infrastructure that we are making sure that it has the ability to become part of a smart city but also looking at existing infrastructure as well and making sure that that in existing infrastructure has the ability to become part of, of the network as well. And, and that then, you know, creates the, the internet of things with big data platforms kind of really kind of powering them and big software platforms as well. And I think for the first time now, we're living in a world where that's becoming more of a reality, especially with 5G and the West Midlands being a 5G testbed as well. That information is able to move quicker. It's able to be analysed quicker as well. And I just want to focus a little bit more on kind of big data for a minute, because I think that's kind of where this all comes to life, really. Um, and I think there's a couple of things there. The first one is the ability to use predictive analytics to spot trends, understand what's going on in our environments and make decisions quickly based on that information and insight. And that optimization and the ability to then create autonomous environments is really powered by kind of artificial intelligence and machine learning being part of these big data platforms. And that then leads to real time decision making where we can start to, you know, understand our environment, understand how both people and transport are interacting with that environment and feed information back in so it's streamlined and, and has the ability to run smoother. But I think around all of that is trust. Consumers kind of want to know that if they're going to be sharing their information, which becomes a big part of a smart city, that it's going to be handled in the right way. So cybersecurity needs to play a big role in, in our smart cities. But I think more than anything, it's the democratization of data. 
it's enabling our data to be shared with our communities so people know what's going on but also organizations that play a role in this as well so those organizations can make decisions and optimize their services that they're offering as part of that environment as well um, and that obviously leads to environmental benefits because we're going to see a reduction in energy usage because we know you know where in the city and where in the region energy needs to be provided and where it's not needed at times where you know it's quieter than, than usual and we can, can monitor air quality so that we can make again decisions and, and quickly respond to that um, and of course enhancements to mobility improve safety around that and better connected transport links and I think a big part of it also is, is the cost of living. We've got to make it appealable for people to want to come back into the cities. Um, there was a McKinsey report from 2019 that predicted that 60% of people would be living in cities by 2030. I'm not sure that's still going to be the case. I think Carl mentioned this um, fear of, of going back into those environments, of being in too close proximity to, to other people. And that's something as a society we've got to understand and we've got to uh, adapt around as well. So I think that we've got to make it appealing. And I think one of the ways we can do that is understanding how people are using our cities. And I think there's going to be a hybrid mix of people actually using urban environments to conduct work, but actually wanting to kind of also work in their home environment, maybe living outside the city, or maybe actually a mix of both. And I think, you know, as we emerge into this world of um, almost pay as, as, as you live, you know, we've had pay as you go, we've had pay as you travel. I think it, now it's, it's, it's everything as a service, essentially. Um, as a consumer, you want to be able to decide how you're interacting with the smart city as and when you wish wish to do so. Um, and I think that is then gonna see some real innovation. Um, we're gonna get charging on the move. We're gonna have the ability to kind of check in and out of both home environments and office environments as well. And I think that overlay of augmented reality as well. So there's this layer of information at our fingertips to enable us to make better decisions as well. Um, so yeah, fascinating times, and, and I'm kind of really keen to see how kind of Birmingham and West Midlands takes advantage of, of some of these opportunities and some of the innovation that sits around it. Thanks very much, Jan. I think um, what really struck me when you were speaking, if we'd have this, if we were having this conversation, you know, six months ago, all of those uh, pieces of technology were already out there, but we'd probably be using them in a very different way. Uh, and uh, it just goes to show how, how quickly our world has transformed. Um, uh, but thank you very much for that kind of really fascinating insight into to some of those technology advancements that are happening all around us, perhaps in a very different way than they were just a few months ago. Absolutely. And now to our final panelist, if that's okay, handing over to Nigel who is the Managing Director of Impact Area Limited. And I think you may have some uh, slides for us as well, Nigel. I'm not sure if um, they're going to... I do have some slides. So hopefully the, you can see those guys. Yes. Just make sure that people can see on my screen. I'm cheating a bit, aren't I, really? Because <laughs> I'm the only one with slides, but it's mostly because um, I've got a lot of things I'd like to talk about and I needed it, something to make me uh, remember what it was I wanted to say. So uh, thanks, everybody. Thanks, Amar Deep. Uh, thanks to the guys. Um, my name is Nigel Pugh. I'm the founder and the CEO of a business called Impact Aerial, and we're a drone professional services business. 
I'll come on to that a little bit further in my presentation uh, about what it is we actually do. Um, I like to try and tell people that we do fun things with drones. That's, that's essentially what we do, but it's a bit more uh, deep than that when we get into it. I thought I'd have a little bit of a history lesson about um, what cities are first. And I thought it was important that we all remember back to why cities were created. So they are first and foremost places where people come together. Yeah. Um, and I wanted to say myself again, <laughs> hi Nigel Pugh, and we're talking about smart cities, but I've done that already. Um, and I wanted to tell you a little bit about my, my business, Impact Aerial, drone professional services company. We're based in Birmingham. Um, what we actually do generally is surveys of uh, obviously the city and other cities as well. Um, but we collect geospatial data about what we're actually observing with the drones that we fly. And I'll come on to that. Um, and again, I wanted to uh, underline it with more of what cities are today. And, and I wanted to do a little bit of a history lesson again about the background to cities. I'm not sure if any of you know this, but cities were um, started over 7,000 years ago. And the cities that we know today, uh, the way they work today, have, have been around since 3,500 BC. That, that amazed me. I didn't even realize that. So uh, I educated myself there. Um, and then it's important to understand why cities exist. And it, that is, uh, a city features the ability for it to trade. So whether it's raw materials, goods and services, uh, financial services, stock shares, currency, that's what a city is, that's what we're talking about. So now we have to talk about what makes a smart city. And we're talking about, as, uh, as Yanis mentioned, the digital world, the internet of things, um, everything happening that's connected in some way to data and the ability to share that data. So we're talking about a digitally connected city where at the core, the networks that power people's businesses, organizations, uh, allow them to do worldwide connections and trading via the internet, and even all the way to the traffic systems that keep our cities moving and flowing. And I'm, I'm going to come on to that as well. So a true city, we believe, and this is one of the things that we do where we collect data, um, is a connected and a collaborative city. It's a city that creates and contains vast amounts of data. It's also a city where um, that data is shared. Um, today, a lot of businesses, um, some businesses ch choose not to share that data. That's changing. We've seen a, we've seen a sort of sea change in the, the way the, the city thinks and what it thinks about the data it collects and holds. Um, but we'd like to think that a smart city is gonna benefit from when that data is shared with everybody. So our vision, once again, is the collaborative city, but a city that forms a connected, complementary ecosystem. What do we mean by that ecosystem? Uh, it's the process of where the data is shared. And once that data is shared, it has a, a value, but that value increases every time the data is shared. And every time there's a package of data added, it becomes much greater. And I've said that I believe it becomes the greater than some of its parts. So here we are at Impact Aerial, We're, we are drone operators and we are collecting that data. So we are effectively the creators of that data. And we refer to that as the, the source feedstock. Um, so I wanted to try and uh, visualize for, for everybody what can happen when we've captured that data from our drones. So uh, drone data is geospatial. That means it's aware of what it's looked at, where it is in a, um, terms of altitude and attitude, um, which gives you a great deal of extra information over normal mapping, normal representation of the city. So imagine having access to all of that data and the depth of that data that allows us to create a digital twin of the city. And imagine what a digital uh, twin of Birmingham City could represent. Um, we, we recently did some work uh, about traffic flows. So we were looking at the, um, 
the, the inbound routes, this was before COVID, I must say, the inbound routes uh, along um, from Spaghetti down the Aston Expressway. Um, but imagine if you could geographically and theoretically represent that data and the data flows as a digital twin and then be able to monitor that data and manipulate that data because I think Yanis mentioned about live real-time data. Live real-time data is the future. It's where we're going to go. And drone captured data, of course, is near real-time. But if the drones are in the air and they're constantly flying and they're constantly observing whatever it is that we've, we've chosen to observe, that gives you real-time data. It's very, very valuable data. Um, so we, we, we feel this is uh, the future of, of cities today. This is what smart cities and digital cities are all about. Uh, it's actually happening here and now. We do it on a regular basis. That's our job is to collect the data and then give it to, to the guys that we see here and other businesses as well. And we'd love to try and help uh, you know, other people. So if you want us to come along and partner, we'd love to have a conversation. Now, my final couple of slides, I want to have a bit of a picture. It's always nice to have a picture. Um, what drones see when they're in a city, it's not our city, I hasten to add. Um, I think it's one of Dubai in actual fact, because I can see the Burj Khalifa there. Um, but when drones are working in cities, of course, they have the advantage of being at an altitude and a greater observation of what they're looking at. What you're seeing there is a head-up display from one of the drones and the data it's capturing, which is being fed back to a live uh, console and, and then potentially fed back to a live central information gathering um, control centre. There is one issue, well, there are multiple issues, and this is what's being addressed at the moment by the drone community. And that is the uh, ability for drones to be self-aware, to fly themselves, but also then to be safe when they're flying themselves in a city. So we do that by uh, creating uh, UTM, so tra travel space uh, for the drones to fly. And there are lots of companies and we're working with some of those companies how to actually do that. So you make sure you're detecting and avoiding buildings, for example. You're also flying between the areas that uh, you're no longer allowed to fly because of restrictions, but also flying in safe corridors. Uh, and that was really it. And that, that was my mine in a summary. Quite a brief one. There's a lot to take in. Ten minutes probably isn't enough, but we really appreciate it. So I want to say thank you very much to the team at Travers, to Amadeep and Abi. Thanks very much again. Thanks, guys. Thank you very much, Nigel. Um, I've had some uh, um, questions come in both to me directly and in the general chat. Um, and perhaps if we can go to, to some of those questions now, if that's OK. Um, coming to you, Carl, first. Um, you talked about um, the new plan um, for transport given uh, the pandemic. Um, have you projected how long it may take for um, where we were previously to, to become back on track? So how significant do you think um, the, the impact of the pandemic will be? Um, for how long will it be felt in terms of our public transport um, systems was the first question. Yes, it's a it's a, a good and um, it's a good question and one that is probably almost impossible to answer, um, which is why it's a good question. Uh, so we've done some scenario testing. I mean, the key factor is when a vaccine comes along, which we don't know the answer to. But even with or without a vaccine, the longer it takes, the longer people's habits build and their behaviours um, can stick. So based on where we are now, we've done some kind of scenario testing over the next 18 months and it's essentially on an axis of how good or bad the economy is and then how willing or unwilling people are to go back to what they were doing before or to share. And in all of those scenarios, um, for public transport in particular, it's lower as, as people's employment situation changes, as that a bit of that need or want to share space, whether it's on rail or um, bus or tram, 
goes down. There are some more positive scenarios where people are working from home more and going out walking and cycling more, which is great, which is where we'd like it to be, where we get a carbon and air quality benefit. And there's some scenarios that fall into, let's just call them the high carbon recovery, where people, we have very high car ownership already in the West Midlands, sort of 70% or so, where people are likely to go back into, into their cars. And the kind of the big enemies not not cars per se it's single occupancy car journeys and in particular short single occupancy car journeys which we we still have an awful lot of in the midlands so i don't think we will ever get quite back to where it was before that's not necessarily a bad thing if some of the behavior changes are positive in terms of people making um, use of new digital technologies working from home more potentially we also acknowledge a lot of people you know in these kind of conversations it's obvious to say working from home there are many many people across all sorts of industries that can't work from home um, it would be impossible for them so we need to still make sure that there is um, a functioning safe and secure transport network that they can use so i don't think we'll ever go back to where we were before we could come out of it in a positive way the current data that we've got at the moment as of kind of this week suggests that road traffic is creeping back up at about 75 85 percent um, bus 35 to 40 similar for tram train very low at about 20 cycling is up a lot if you were to map cycling use from some of the sensors we've got on the network and we haven't got enough that's one of the things we're we're trying to roll out quickly at the moment and you map cycling use and you mapped it against the weather you would see a very strong correlation between how much people cycle and how sunny it is outside so we do need a resilient transport network that works in all conditions and for all users so we don't i don't think we'll get back to where we were before but the future is not completely determined and we do have an influence over it. So um, we'll see, we'll see how that plays out. Thank you very much, Carl. Um, now turning to the, the, the general chat, actually, um, starting off with the first question, again for you, Carl, um, many thanks. Um, you know what all transport related data is available to private companies to access. So innovative services can be developed on top of that data layer. And what is the process to make the services available to, to the public through your organisation? So we are, we are keen on our, our principle is that it should be, um, should be public, it should be open where, where we have it. As an organisation, um, a lot of the data we get actually comes from other places. So the local authorities provide us their traffic information. We're working through with them at the moment um, the process of how we actually do share more because there's multiple agreements needed between who's produced it and what we can and, and can't do with it but our principle is if we've got it we um we should be sharing it we're a local government body and people should should have it um we do have a website data insight at transport for west midlands and we have some apis on that from again our point of view is a really interesting conversation to have about I don't really want some of my guys making apps and things like that as an example in one area where there's a load of brilliant people out there that will do far better with the data that we've got. On the same token, I also don't want to release, lose the relationship we have with our customers and users that look to us for information as a trusted source of information as a, a local government body. Um, but the principle is we should be making what we've got as available and as open as possible within the realms of the um, of the data agreements that we've got. As I say, much of it does come from other people. The nature of the deregulated UK transport network, I mean, we don't actually have that much bus data. It's National Express. We're a commercial company. 
we go and collect information at the stops with customers what happens on board a lot of that is is their information it's not ours to share um tram much better we we own and operate tram so there's no reason why we can't share that data so in terms of creating an integrated approach it can be a bit of a mixed bag actually across across all these many partners but we are working towards that and we the principle is it should be um should be available where, where possible great uh, and anecdotally we've just been working on the project with tfwm actually on a on a data aggregator very specifically for autonomous vehicles but looking at different data uh, sets and aggregating them in one place for public and private exploitation i think um, we'll be speaking more about that um, when that project completes in the next few months um yanis there's a question that came through directly to me um around digital and um the the increase of that may have the impact that that may have on mental health due to the increased impact on isolation if we're not interacting with people if we're, we're too reliant on digital um is digital really the answer or actually, uh, could it be a, a double-edged sword? Was the question? I think, like most things, it's a balance. Um, you know, I, I like most people have um, got Zoom fatigue, um, and you know, digital has become kind of a necessity in the world we live in. Um, but you know, I, I'm craving, like most people are, the ability to once again interact in a personal, human way. Um, and I think that does does play a role on on mental health. Uh, and I think we need to better educate people on the pitfalls of being too switched on all the time. Um, so that that is something that I think we all have a responsibility of. Um, and it starts with our, our young people, um, but it goes all the way through the, the generations, really. Um, but I think yeah, we're going to live in a in a hybrid world where. You know, digital is going to be a, a, an important integral part of the lives we lead. Um, but I think it almost needs to feel almost a part of kind of the, the real world. So it's an overlay of information as opposed to, you know, you picking up the device and always being kind of focused on it. Um, it, it almost becomes a seamless transition. And you're not aware you're not aware that digital is playing a role in your everyday life. For instance, you know the, the car you drive will be using digital to make decisions. You know, small microscopic um, automation without you even knowing that. Um, your home will make adjustments using digital and technology again without you even know that that's going on, and that will benefit you from a, a cost-saving point of view. It will benefit the environment. Um, and also kind of, you know, using digital for good as well. Um, you know, there are platforms out there that obviously are focusing on mental health and how to, to support people. Um, but I, yeah, I think we need, a, we need a balance really. And I think that's why cities can play such an important role. It gives people the opportunity to kind of go and, and immerse in an environment with, with other people, to interact, to, to collaborate, to communicate, to engage but also then had to have the ability to step away and to go into other environments where, you know, it might be better suited to, to kind of mental health as well. Thanks, Yanis. And actually in the, in the general chat, there's also a question that uh, uh, is directed to you around cybersecurity. Uh, you know, the protection of personal data is a significant concern and growing for many people. How do we reassure people that data is secure 
do you think people will develop an awareness of the risks and democratization of data that will be a reality and actually there was another one directly to me um, along the same vein um, should we be putting everything out there um, and do we actually know what we're really putting out there already so you know a combination of issues around um, inadvertent data releasing but also um, how that is then employed and what can we do to keep ourselves safe yeah it's a, it's a very very good question and again one that's almost impossible to, to answer um, but I'll, I'll give it a go so I, I think first of all kind of you know the, the bedrock of a smart city has to encompass cyber security um, because people need to be reassured that the right things are in place so that when data is shared especially if that's personal information that that is going to be anonymized and that is going to be secure so that's first and foremost but the challenge isn't necessarily that you know you have things like cyber security in place to protect people's data because actually with Cambridge Analytica with GDPR people have become more aware of their data being manipulated um, and used in ways that they you know probably don't agree with and you know in some cases extreme cases you know isn't ethical um, and, and that's caused kind of consumer behavior to push back against the sharing of data and the sharing of information um, we've only got to kind of look at the, the kind of covid tracking app as a, as a kind of case in point there right you know people you know know that it's for their own benefit they know that actually being able to share their information on who they've interacted with where they've gone will ultimately save people's lives but actually it's a trade-off it's actually i'm giving away my personal information and we've seen so many people that have downloaded the app and then quickly deleted it again because they don't feel reassured that their data is going to be handled in the right way so i suppose the question is to all of that how do we overcome this right um, and I think how we overcome it is by doing small kind of micro test beds of data sharing. Um, so one great example would be healthcare. You know, if we can kind of show people that if they give small bits of information about their health, about how they're, you know, what fitness routines they're, they're taking part in, you know, their heart rate, whatever it may be, and feel trusted enough and trust is built over time of course so we need to kind of take an iterative approach to this that their gp services and the hospitals and the nhs can provide better services back to them that are preventative not reactive to when someone gets ill that's when we'll start to see people become more willing to share their data and information i believe but what we don't want to do is we don't want to start from a point especially with smart cities where actually we use people's data and then guess what the first thing we do is we find someone we find someone because we know that they've kind of crossed a barrier for instance within the green zone and they haven't informed someone for me we shouldn't go to that point straight away what we should do is educate people and we should kind of tell people how we're using their data how we're improving services now of course fines will play a part in it and, and there will be policing around data that's inevitable but what we don't want to do is create a big brother state um, because that Orwellian kind of view on the world is, is, is something that people are more and more aware of right now um, and, and we've just got to be careful so for me it's focusing on the positives let's improve people's lives let's build trust over time and in doing so 
people be reward people will be more willing to share their data um but it's not going to happen overnight thank you Yanis. and actually uh, just leaning in a little bit onto the into that question for you nigel you are capturing data inadvertently perhaps images that may be sensitive or potentially sensitive does that crop up uh, and, and what steps do impact aerial take with regard to those images that they are securing again it's another one of those uh really great questions with virtually no direct answer to it. So a lot of the, the data that we capture, um, almost contrary to what I said earlier on about sharing the data, is, is often subject to an NDA. So we've been asked not to share the data because it's, it's unique to the, uh, the people that have asked us to collect the data. Um, and you do have to be careful, particularly in concentrated city areas. Uh, for example, if we are capturing um, just normal data maybe of a park that would include um you know mothers with their children probably before uh, the covid situation happened then we have to do something about it you have to make sure that either the people on the ground are informed so we do a lot of information requests up front to say do you have any objection to the data that might be filmed today by a drone being captured um, and then potentially you, you may be part of that either photography or film or the data set that's that's produced Generally, you don't get that many people complain about it if you ask them and, and you, you're very upfront and say that the data is going to be shared. But more often than not, the, the large scale data projects we're doing, where we're doing mapping, where we're doing what we call um, uh, point clouds. So it's effectively a three dimensional representation of a building, for example. Um, the, the tall building, you always get the number wrong. Is it 102 Colmore Row, for example? That would be a great example to be able to. Uh, map from a, a, a point cloud point of view because you'll be able to virtually tour the building at its at its most extreme heights in that situation there won't be very many uh, circumstances where you'd be um, you know exposing an individual's data because they may be on top of that building for example or in one of the windows um, but you do have to be careful but I think it's 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 to Yanis's point, you have to make sure that the data that's being shared is you either have the consent, consent or the trust. The trust has to come up front uh, by, by asking for permission or for seeking you know, um, a better way of sharing the data without actually sharing people's individuals. In reality, in the six years that we've been doing it, I don't think we've ever been questioned about we, we don't want you to share our data. It's something we don't want to do. Uh, the public park instance is a, is a good example. Um, because I know that uh, Carl mentioned about uh, Coventry, for example, we did we did quite a, a lot of work to promote the outdoor spaces for the Coventry and the Neaton. Um, and of course, the, at that time, there were lots of people in the parks, and we were filming, you know, as I said, children playing on on swings and, and roundabouts and that type of thing. And we didn't really have any major issues. A lot of it comes down to how you actually present the data that you've captured, and often also how you capture the data as well there are ways of getting around it ultimately if the, if somebody objects then you can have to do something about blanking out a little bit like google do with car registrations and numbers of houses and and that can be done um but uh, it like i said in all the years we've been doing we've never had a major issue so i don't think it's that as bad as people perceive that's good to hear thank you very much carl there was a question that came in to me um are you changing your capital investment plans based on the pandemic um, and is does the the level of investment anticipated um, previously is it still justified? Um, if I can ask you to turn to that question, uh, my, what immediately sprang to my mind was um, uh, the, the, how Nigel opened his conversation by saying cities have been around for millennia, um, and actually, you know, they've clearly survived through previous pandemics. So, you know, I, I, I imagine capital. Um, 
infrastructure and investment will carry on because this is more of a blip than than anything else but would welcome your response to that question it, it, it is it's a good question it's one that we've been thinking about so the current projects that are in train um, are carrying on um, as, as they were we think that's important again to be ready for when we where we recover and come out of the pandemic so the metro routes are currently under construction uh, in Birmingham city centre and one that will be uh, has just started that goes through Dudley town centre and onto Merry Hill um, they, they are carrying on as as we as we anticipated them um, and whilst it may take a bit of time for things to come back and they may not come back the same, we, we do think there'll be enough demand for some of those uh, those transport systems that we're putting in. But it definitely does make us think. It also makes us think about, as we talked about, how people use cities and the different ways that people travel. We've spent an awful lot of money and in investment in our city and town centres. And I suppose one of the arguments you could make is maybe we need to do some more stuff locally, more stuff in suburbs and in the kind of um, the second tier down centres as well. So people can benefit from from um, local trips as much as, uh, you know, a big focus on the on the city and town centres. I mean, Birmingham has had tremendous investment in it um, from the private sector and also the public sector through New Street and the, and the tram extension and so on. So the projects that we've got in train at the moment, we think we need to be prepared for the recovery, which we hope will happen. Um, when a vaccine does arrive, people will, will, will then be feel more confident travelling. And we need to be in the right place. We don't want to um, actively encourage a high carbon um, recovery, which will by, by not providing um, public transport, as an example, in particular, that that will be kind of sending the message that it's OK to, to drive everywhere. But we probably do need to, and I think we will in our, in our new strategy, think about the balance between where we invest and the type of things we invest in. There'll also be some short-term impacts, I think, on, on, on construction costs and delivery that will come up. Um, you know, materials are harder to get at the moment, different um, working practices being put in place. Um, so there's a lot for us to think about. I mean, we still also have uh, HS2 coming which is making um, a big impact, a big, you know, one of the biggest infrastructure projects in, in, in Europe, and we, we benefit from that significantly. And, and how that influences those kind of shape of the city over not the next two or three years, but 20, 30, 40 years will also be interesting. Thank you. Thanks very much for that. Um, there is um, a question that's come in, um, which um, I, I will read out and perhaps have a go at it first and then um, invite my um, colleagues to, to, to have a go if, if that's okay. Um, it's about emissions and back in the day there were concerns around emissions from radio frequencies, uh, from mobile phones uh, and the effect on the bodies with more and more wireless product services, is the emission concern likely to rear its head again? And who, how do we get this managed? Um, Yanis, um, I, if, if I have a go at this and perhaps you can um, come in. So, um, you know, there, there was, uh, when the pandemic, pandemic got going in its early stages, a conspiracy that actually it was linked to 5G. That was roundly, um, uh, you know, uh, with really detailed evidence proved to be incorrect um, and actually there are, were real concerns uh, around the way that social media was used to kind of uh, abuse um, you know 
fact checking, etc. But at the heart of that, there, there was this concern that, you know, radio waves, 5G waves were impacting on health detrimentally. Uh, and we had a whole host of um, bodies around the world, including WHO, um, NHS, uh, all come out and actually say, no, there is no concern with regard to the use of this technology and the impact of, uh, on our health. Um, now, the, the question that's been asked is probably a little bit broader than that. It's, it's uh, I suppose, you know, all of these little connected devices that we have all emit something. Uh, and the more that we have those devices emitting more and more, is there a concern? You know, from my perspective, there isn't anything out there that's indicated that volume has an impact. Um, uh, but, you know, it is a genuine question. Uh, and all the data that I'm aware of, uh, has indicated that there isn't anything to be concerned about. Um, you know, there is a lot to the contrary, but a lot of that has proven to be incorrect on a number of levels. Um, so I don't think there is anything that's concrete out there at the moment that shows either use of technology or the volume of those I, uh, items that we've got that are relying on those technology detrimentally impact on health. Um, but you know, welcome thoughts from our other speakers. Yanis, uh, any thoughts on that? Yeah, I think I think you're absolutely spot on. Um, you know, we've got to be be really careful with these kind of conversations because, um, you know, ultimately, um, that we have to rely on kind of the data and, and kind of people who are, I guess, much better placed than us to provide us with um, the reassurance that these aren't problems. I, I guess the problem is we live in a post-truth world. Um, so, you know, <laughs> what do you believe anymore? Um, you know, data at its root cause can be manipulated. Um, you know, we, we know that. We know that there's, there's research papers out there that have been manipulated at the, you know, the, the, the point of creation and then used to um, create conspiracy theories and, and manipulate people. So I think that it's a challenge and one that really big tech and the social media companies have to step up and play a role in. Um, because, you know, if, if we know that information is being shared, um, which isn't factually correct, um, then, you know, they have a responsibility, in my opinion, to, you know, call that out, flag it. Now, I think they're getting better but they've got a long way to go. And, and we're talking kind of, you know, of course, Facebook and, and Twitter here, um, and then obviously Instagram and WhatsApp from, from Facebook's point of view, and also TikTok and the emergence of that as well. So it's, it's a big challenge. It, it really is a big challenge. Um, I, I think what we, it comes back to sharing information, actually, and, and that real-time um, kind of democratization of data. Because if we can kind of show people, for instance, what the, the levels of emissions are, from these devices and provide that to the public freely, then hopefully that will go some way to reassuring people that there isn't an issue. Um, but of course, if those do rise, again, we all have a responsibility to call it out and say, why, why is that happening? And um, you know, the problem is we just don't know, do we? Um, there has been so many times in history where we've thought that we have got something right and actually to the contrary, it's not been great. And, you know, in some cases has caused lots of problems. So I just think we have to kind of, you know, use technology with an air of caution and make sure that we all play a, a responsibility in um, understanding the role it does play. 
Thanks, Yanis. Uh, and Nigel, a question that has come in for you, but did you have any thoughts on that before I asked the question? I think, I think yeah, Yanis has covered it well because there has been a lot of misinformation about, clearly, you know, in our role, we do a lot of um, collecting of data, which requires a, a transmission subsystem. So we, you know, we're using fairly high powered um, RF uh, backwards and forwards for the data transmission of, between the drone and the, the collecting point. And, and I always say this to people, you know, that the conspiracy theory has been around for, for years, hasn't it, about people uh, getting cancer from mobile phones. Um, and do any of us, even today, know anybody that ever, has ever been, you know, had an illness caused by a mobile phone or you couldn't even prove it? So there's a lot of it is, 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 is probably hearsay. And as you said, a lot of the, um, the very well respected organisations uh, dissed everything to do with 5G and the fact that it might, uh, you know, have a, have a detrimental effect on people's uh, health and welfare. In fact, today, you know, we're part of one of the, the 5G trials. We're doing um, live surveys, effectively live surveys, using a 5G infrastructure network. Um, and uh, I think it's not even a question of, is it going to be a risk? It's a question of that everybody needs more access to data because of everything that we're talking about today. And that should really be the least of our concerns. Um, so yeah, I think that was my point to, uh, to the, the question of Yanis, and Yanis covered it better than I did. Thank you. Thanks, Nigel. I think my RSI may be down to my iPhone. So, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Maybe. That's a different thing, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, but turning to the question that, was, uh, that had come in, um, you start, uh, Nigel, you started your talk by saying that um, um, trade, uh, cities were essential for trade. Um, given the shift to e-commerce and announcements such as the close of John Lewis in Birmingham and Tamworth, do you think cities are essential for trade anymore? It's a really good question, isn't it? I think, um, I think Carl made a great point about trying to get people back into cities because, you know, personally, you know, I've, I've, I've lived and worked in, in the city and around the city of Birmingham for 40 years. And prior to the COVID-19 uh, situation, I personally felt really good about the, the health and wealth of the city. It was, a, it was a nice place to be. You know, Yanis's fantastic initiative last year for the, uh, for the tech uh, event, it brought lots of us together and we all agreed that what was really good about Birmingham was how good it felt, a great place to be, uh, you know, a great place to, to, to eat out, to drink, go to bars. If ever that happens again, I'd love to know it, it happened soon uh, properly. But it was also about people coming together and doing business with each other. So trading, you know, uh, my, my story was not really about, uh, I wasn't really talking about trading, you know, trading one-to-one -one in, in selling stocks and shares. But everything that we do, you know, from walking down the high street to seeing a nice pair of shoes in a shop, there is a whole infrastructure behind that and it's the way that the city works the city works by people coming together and then you have in collective areas of people with certain skill sets so insurance companies advisors businesses like your own Amadeep you know Travers um, they tend to structure uh, uh, sorry uh, uh, build their businesses in city centres because people come to those centres because they want the collected power that's actually uh, there. And I hope, I do hope we get back to that. I, I, I sincerely do, um, because personally, I love working in and around the city. I love the vibe. I love the way HS2 um, has brought, you know, more uh, yeah, investment into the city. You can feel that excitement. So I hope it doesn't stop. And I hope that, uh, that COVID hasn't, uh, hasn't changed it. So as much as I, I, I don't like hearing about losing great stores like John Lewis, I hope it doesn't affect the way businesses trade. Thank you. Thanks very much, Nigel. Uh, and yeah, 
having worked, I've been at Trowers for quite a long time and spent 10 in London uh, and the, the rest uh, in Birmingham. There is such a convenience about cities. There is so much that can be done through co-locating lots of people together. You know, that's a, an intrinsic factor of why cities are, are, are essential. Um, and I'm totally biased as well. I thought Birmingham Tech and Birmingham Tech Week were amazing. And uh, this isn't a question that's coming in, but I do want to ask it of you, Yanis, um, not to preempt our board meeting um, that's happening very soon. But what, what are the plans this year for Birmingham Tech in the context of um, everything that's going on around the pandemic? Yeah, so we've, we've obviously had a, a challenge in, in trying to work out what we should do um, and, and how we do it. Um, and I think, well, we, we have opted for a digital event that's going to take place in, in October. Um, but I think more and more what I want to encourage and what was a big part of Birmingham Tech Week last year was these community events, which I believe can still take place within the city environment. Um, but again, we have to you know tread carefully um, and make sure that you know, we have lots of things taken into consideration with that. So we, not just observing social distancing, um, because that, that for me, you know, it might not even be in place by then. Um, you know, <laughs> we're already at the point where it's what, plus one meter, whatever that means. Um, but I, I believe now it's about kind of the psychology of people um, you know, making it feel safe to go back into those environments, to network, to collaborate. Um, but I do, yeah, I do want those those events to, to be encouraged and, and, and still take part because ultimately Birmingham Tech and Birmingham Tech Week was founded on the principle of collaboration and community. Um, and the city, as Nigel mentioned, is such a, a wonderful environment to, you know, engage with people in and around. Um, so I wouldn't want to lose that. Um, but at the same time, I think the core element of Birmingham Tech Week this year will be a series of um, keynotes that are delivered digitally. Um, because you can imagine a lot of the people we're interacting with um, need to, to be reassured, you know, which option we're going with. Um, and, and digital has just been the, the one that we know can happen regardless of what may happen. Um, so yeah, we're lots to consider, and then we're also evolving as well. So you know, a, a lot of people know us for um, Birmingham Tech Week, of course, and that was our our launch pad. But we're now evolving into almost a, a kind of mini version of um, Tech Nation or UK Tech, but focused on the West Midlands and Birmingham. You know, to connect up kind of the private and public sector but also to provide you know, a platform for people to be able to collaborate, engage with one another, find out what's going on, find out where to go, what services are available, what opportunities are available, um, and also kind of foster that community better as, as well. Um, and give, a, give people a platform for success. Some wonderful things going on in, on, on in Birmingham and West Midlands. You know, we've heard from what Nigel's doing today. You know, we've heard what Colin and his team are doing. But... I believe we need to do a better job of telling people that. And I think that's where kind of places like Bristol and Manchester have done a phenomenal job. They've got the narrative together and they've told the world what their story is all about. We need to be better at that. So that's kind of a, a personal mission that I'm on right now. Um, but one again, that's not gonna happen overnight. 
No, uh, absolutely. And like I said, I'm very biased that I think that the stuff that Birmingham Tech has been doing has been amazing in just helping create that narrative. Um, the, uh, actually, Yanis, I'm going to turn to you for the next question as well. Um, I'm going to summarise it. Um, essentially, I think it's focusing on, on the digital divide that the people who are tech savvy and people who aren't tech savvy, do you think those that aren't tech savvy are going to be left behind and find it harder to get jobs? Uh, well, I, I think we're, as a society, we've got a big, big role to play in this. Um, so I, I sit on the Combined Authorities Digital Skills Partnership Board. Um, and, and that's because it's something very, very close to my heart. Um, I believe that kind of digital um, and digital skills need to be provided to every one of us, um, regardless of, of what stage you're at. Um, you know, people are going to need those digital skills to operate in this new world. Um, and we need to reach for people in the most deprived areas and the people that are, are most vulnerable. Um, you know, the fact that, that still in this day and age, some people haven't got access to high speed internet or internet at all, sorry, not, not just high speed internet, the internet at all. They're not connected. You know, um, some households in some of our most deprived areas of, of the region haven't got devices, they haven't got mobile phones, they haven't got computers. So first of all, we need to get the kind of the equipment in quickly. Um, and then we need to provide people with skills to either upskill if you are, you know, coming from a, a job that may have not been digital. We need to provide those people with reskilling opportunities. Um, and that's why stuff like School of Code, Code Your Future is, is you know, those initiatives are playing such an important role. Um, but we need to do more and we need to be better at it um, because people will get left behind. And I, and I really do not want people to get left behind because technology and digital is such a, a powerful thing. Um, but we need to kind of make sure that, that the right people get access to it. Thank you. Thanks very much, Yanis. Um, the next question is for, for you, Nigel. Um, Nigel, just going back to the conversation that you said uh, around the, the data that you were capturing uh, and that you hadn't experienced any issues with it, it um, the question is, did you feel that that was predominantly because that data was unstructured? And um, do you see any change in that lack of objection if um, that unstructured data is accessible through new tech tools? I think the answer to the question is probably very much so. That's the reason why we haven't had an issue so far, uh, possibly because of the way we collect the data, possibly because of the way that we, we go out of our way to make sure that we're not uh, breaching people's privacy. But also, it's exactly true that as we go forward, the, the more unstructured data um, being accessible to a wider audience, there may be issues around that. Um, if you look at the COVID example for, uh, as, as, a, as a, a real world example, um, in some cities, I won't mention which ones they are, it's not one of ours, um, drones have been used to recognise, um, uh, use a, an AI pattern to recognise individuals that um, may be at risk, they may be a carrier of COVID-19, and to track those individuals. Now, you could say that that is a breach of that individual's privacy, but it is also um, a, a very accurate method of tracking and tracing somebody who is potentially at risk and potentially um, risking the, the, the wider audience. So uh, that, that's a question of morality, isn't it? How do we do it? Do we make sure that we do it uh, sensitively or, um, you know, make sure that the data is shared properly and then still kept private when it's not uh, put out in the public uh, domain. Um, 
it's 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 very interesting what you can do with data so one of our projects uh, we've created a, a software platform an ai platform um for for recognizing invasive species um and that that's uh, japanese knotweed uh, you know invasive species like that they grow very fast because you want to stop those um damaging the infrastructure we're actually doing it within a, in a rail environment because it's uh, it loves uh, japanese knotweed as example loves ballast and it loves to grow there very quickly um again of course we're not invading anyone's privacy when it comes to looking at japanese knotweed but we are using an ai model to recognize and differentiate different types of invasive species um, so uh, the, the the conspiracy theorists could say, well, hang on a second, those same tool sets that we're, we're talking about there could be used to recognize um, certain people, um, people that might be um, uh, displaying uh, potentially violent behavior in the city and they might be at risk. Now, personally, I think that's not a bad idea. If you do have people who are, you know, hell bent on terrorists, for example, doing something, you can actually track those people. Um, and you can use an AI data model and the, the, the drone data captures uh, is a very good way of tracking those people because if we could stop people like the Manchester bomber before they actually enter the city and, and prevent that, that that's a, I'd, I'd rather that happen and, and be uh, less concerned about the fact that we're breaching people's uh, data privacy. Um, from the data perspective that we use, I think Carl mentioned something earlier on about the self-driving car programs or the, the self-driving vehicles i forget which was car so we're working with a, a major vehicle manufacturer um, for for their self-driving car and we're we're monitoring the data um, on various motorways and more importantly various motorway junctions that that's quite important because when you're trying to teach a self-driving car how to drive you've got to teach it all of the things that we forget that we learned as children before we went to drive and that is is it safe to step out into a road when there's a 70 mile an hour car coming a, a data set a model doesn't know that and you have to feed it with lots and lots of data into the ir model um is that a breach of anyone's data could be um you know we're, we're looking at flows of traffic we're looking at vehicles merging from junctions from a you know a main road a, a dual carriage onto a, onto a motorway clearly that's going to cover all sorts of different types of transport it might be commercial transport it might be just ordinary people's transport there are issues around data privacy there but there are equally great benefits in collecting that data and analyzing it and then presenting it as a data set that can be used as Carl said for for, for the devices that, that can work in the city. So I, I think the the potential risks and disadvantages of capturing data that you don't want people to share is far outweighed by the advantage of actually collecting that data in the first place. There's a long way of going around answering the question but I think that's uh, that's where that question came from about unstructured data. <laughs> Um, no, it's a very good answer, actually. Um, um, Carl, I've had a couple of questions that I'm going to direct at you. Um, the first is around increased car data. You mentioned um, that's gone back to, you know, not too far from where it was pre-COVID. Do you think that road infrastructure can be warranted um, going forward? Um, given the impact that cars have shown to have on the environment? And if we want a green recovery, um, would actually um, infrastructure, road infrastructure be something that we should be considering investing in? Um, and also there was a question around um, the impact that we are had, where, where uh, an associated question around autonomous vehicles. Now, could they also be employed if they don't use petrol or diesel to um, increase the, uh, to benefit the environment in a greater way? So two kind of questions related to the impact on the environment, um, reducing investment in, in road infrastructure and also you looking at autonomous vehicles 
but not of the type that we would associate that with. So the um, you know the, the cars, etc. But looking at different types of autonomous vehicles that will be beneficial for transport and the environment. Yeah, it's um, so. In terms of the transport sector and its contribution to carbon, it's a good it's a good place to start as any. Transport makes up about a third of our carbon output. And sadly, over the last 10 or more years, other sectors have improved their carbon output. Transport hasn't. It's basically stayed flat. So whilst vehicle manufacturers have made better engines, we tend to put them in bigger, taller, arguably uglier cars, um, which are very popular at the moment. And there is, has been a take-up of EVs, but it's probably not been... Um, as fast as we'd like. That, that being said, you know, the private car is appropriate in many, for many circumstances for driving people, getting them to the things they need to get to. Again, it's more the single occupancy car journeys in the wrong locations that I think are kind of the biggest, the biggest thing to tackle first. And we should also remember that our roads don't just carry cars. We have cyclists on our roads. We have our buses on the roads and they perform an important part of our, of our, net, of our streetscapes. But within that third, um, that we contribute towards carbon as a whole. The private car is then the biggest contributor, so both cars and um, and some LGVs, HGVs, heavy goods vehicles as well. So we do seriously need to think about what we do to, to mitigate that. Some of our local authority partners, Birmingham in particular, have been very bold about some of the things they would choose to do and how they would allocate the road space we've got, so not necessarily adding uh, any more to our highways, keeping the highway network as it is and well maintained, but how you use that space, whether you use that space for um, private car or walking and cycling or buses or other forms of transport, e-scooters that we talked about, um, is an important debate to have. We historically used to build things that really kind of catered for the peaks in the morning and the evening. Um, the other thing we're seeing from our traffic analysis at the moment is those peaks aren't as pronounced at the moment. Um, there isn't a very um, intense AM peak anymore. It's much flatter as people travel at different times. And there's a role for the business community to play as well in being a bit more flexible in terms of when people need to travel, where they're working and how they're working. So I wouldn't rule out um, a complete kind of blanket ban on highway infrastructure. There'll be some pinch points where it's important. We do need to have a well-maintained and safe network, and then we need to think about how we use that network so it doesn't have to all be, be used by cars. Um, the second part was about connected and autonomous vehicles, if I remember yeah. correctly. Um, the, the connected bit is very important. It's kind of the bit that people often forget about. They go straight into the kind of future and the cars will drive themselves, and isn't that great? Connected bit is very important to us, gives us an awful lot of data, again, so give us ability to understand how we might manage the network better. So as cars uh, in, uh, communicate between themselves, potential safety benefit or an efficiency benefit, but also how those vehicles communicate with roadside infrastructure that lets us know what's going on on that network, you know, where, when are people traveling, how many, and so on, which I think is often overlooked. The autonomous element is potentially very useful um, as we think about being more efficient in how we use um, the transport system. Again, vehicles can potentially, especially freight, could travel closer together, so you wouldn't need as many of the spaces that you would need to, to leave at the moment. And it does also give us the ability, if we think about what public transport looks like in the future, uh, and the difficulties at the moment of funding that public transport, you know, it's, it's um, very labour intensive and costly. 
if there's a different way of doing it using autonomous vehicles and potentially there's a market there that could help both from a social inclusion aspect but also from an environmental aspect the fact that if they're electric and autonomous and um, efficient they could they could well provide a role for some of the areas where we currently basically serve them in the way we used to serve them in the 60s with kind of bus routes that haven't much changed bus routes that follow the tram routes that we got rid of that now we're spending a lot of time and effort putting trams back on um so the transport network hasn't actually in some respects evolved as quickly as we have evolved as a society um and that ability and the concept that Yanni spoke about about um, mobility as a service is it's choosing the right mode for the right journey at the right time and not being well i always i always use the car or i always use the train depending on what it is you need to do um we will hopefully have a a, a more bespoke offer for each one of those um, journeys and also hopefully in a way that is um that is clean and environmentally sensitive so there are there are definitely some opportunities the current projects such as the the, the forerunner at the moment from a, a public sense is um, coventry working with dudley and uh, many of our automotive um, uh, sector colleagues on a concept called very light rail so our tramways are expensive um, they work really well but they're difficult to deliver because of the cost very light rail would look to have something that's smaller uh, more flexible lets you still maintain all the utilities all the pipes and cables that are under the under the footway and provide potentially an autonomous vehicle that runs that runs on top um, still a long way to go on that but it's good to see as the west midlands we are um, investing in these research and development projects to try and create a, a better transport system for the future thank you very much carl we're due to finish it um you've 2.15 so a couple of minutes before I do my thanks but you know wanting to end on a positive note um, we are all uh, big advocates for our region uh, and you know we have taken a hit the whole of the UK has taken a hit as is the whole world from the pandemic but um, is there anything that uh, I'd like to all turn to all of you now to say you know what are you looking ex uh, looking forward to what are you excited about that this region has got to offer um, uh, beyond the pandemic. Yanis, um, turning to you first, just a couple of seconds, please. Yeah, I think that we have a, an opportunity to take the lead on the green recovery um, within the West Midlands and, and Birmingham. Um, I think that it's been a catalyst for that, and I think we should take advantage of it. And I think we've got a, a compelling event with the Commonwealth Games. Let's kind of, you know, head towards that, um, create a, a truly smart city that is, you know, carbon, well, not carbon neutral, but as close as possible, um, that, that gets the world to kind of, you know, recognise what we're doing. Thank you, Yanis. N Nigel, what, what are you excited about uh, for the future of our region? I think I'd echo Yanis's point about the, the Commonwealth Games. We're really looking forward to that. So it's a fantastic opportunity. But also, Yanis made a point about the fact that um, Bristol and Manchester have done a really good job, a really good PR job of saying how fantastic their city is. We shouldn't really stand for that. We should do the, exactly the same. We should do much better. I think we should go out there and shout as loud as possible about how fantastic the city of Birmingham is. And I know Yanis' great initiative does that anyway, but I think lots more of us should do that because there really are some fantastic things happening, not just, not just the, you know, the Commonwealth Games, but HS2, the insurgence of all of the development around the HS2, and it's the knock-on effect of all the other businesses that will be impacted and all the other organisations that are going to provide the downstream services for the HS2 deliverables. And that's all I think we need to shout about. And 
we should be more proud of our city. Thank you, Nigel. Carl? Yes, I mean, great, great comments from the other, um, uh, other guests, which I, which I fully echo. I mean, we, we, were, we were hit relatively hard in the last recession, but the positive story really was how fast we bounced back. And we do have some fantastic assets in this region, both the people, the businesses, some of the infrastructure, um, to really to, to make it as, as much of a V-shaped return to, um, to success as, um, as, as we can. And some of those events are going to be crucial. Coventry City of Culture coming before the Commonwealth Games and then leading on to the delivery of, of HS2. And we, we, we should be positive that we can get back to where we were and beyond and hopefully, as we said, in a cleaner, greener, fairer way. And a plug for WM5G and the amazing work that they're doing, uh, making us the biggest urban uh, 5G testbed in the UK. Uh, and again, that, that massive strides in technology that that is happening. On behalf of Downtown, on behalf of Trouds and Hamlins, thank you very much to our panellists for an amazing and fascinating talk there about smart cities and our digital future. Thank you very much for joining us. And uh, there will be further events on the Downtown website. Please do check them out. There's some really interesting stuff coming up. Thank you, everyone, for joining us today. Goodbye. Thanks, everyone. Bye-bye.